MacCast, Sunday, July 10th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to back have you back here for another episode of Mac News, hints, tips, tricks, and all the goings-ons in our little Apple and Mac community. Hopefully you are having a wonderful day, evening, weekend, whatever that might be. Sitting here, and it has been pretty nice. I can't complain too much. A little bit humid out here in the Midwest now that we're here in South Dakota, but other than that, it has been wonderful. Had a great Fourth uh, of July. If you celebrate that, if you're in the United States, hopefully you had a great one too. Uh, maybe had a barbecue and some good food. We definitely did that. And uh, yeah, things are going well. Looking over the Apple and Mac stuff, I've got a few good things to get into in this episode. We've got some Apple Watch news. We're going to talk a little bit about iPads. Uh, new Mac is out there. We'll talk about that a little bit and talk about uh, orders and performance and all that sort of stuff. We have some iPhone news and updates. Of course, Apple TV Plus stuff. Uh, a honor going to uh, one of Apple's executives. We'll get into that. And a few little odds and ends with iPad mini stuff and Apple Maps and all the good stuff that uh, Apple is up to these days. And then we're going to get into uh, a lot of your feedback on some of the things I've been talking about on recent recent episodes, including my discussion of what is a family and how Apple sort of defines that. You had some great feedback there. Got some feedback on organizing our cables and getting rid of that desk clutter. I got a good tip there, actually. And then I'm going to get into some storage things things that I want to talk about. And then I have a few other tips and tricks. And then we're going to try and help a listener out with some questions about AirPods and service. And so that'll round out this episode of the MacCast. Should be a great episode. I say we just dive right in. Uh, first off, a little bit of follow-up to some news we talked about regarding iPads and specifically the home app and being able to use iPads as home hubs. So one of the things that is happening with the home app is Apple is updating the internal architecture to their new architecture. And this was something they talked about at Worldwide Developer Conference. Uh, they're basically implementing Matter, which is an open architecture home protocol that they helped uh, contribute to, I think, big pieces of actually HomeKit. Um, but the big news there is that it's going to be supported by Google and Amazon and basically everybody's finally coming together and we're not going to have to worry so much about you know will this thing work with HomeKit or not it's all just going to work with Matter and Matter is going to be integrated and it's going to have the security features like HomeKit so it's a really great upgrade but as part of that Apple has said that iPads will not be able to support that so in the past you could use your iPad as a home hub and in case you don't know what that means uh a device that is a home hub enables you to access your smart devices inside your house when you are out securely 
when you're outside of your home network. So Apple had a few devices that would allow you to, to do that. Uh, one is a HomePod or a HomePod Mini. Another one is your Apple TV. And then also, if you had an iPad and it was sitting at home, so you didn't take that with you, that could be used as a home hub as well. And with Matter coming out in this new home architecture, Apple is saying that's not going to be supported on the iPad. So there was a lot of news saying, hey, iPads are losing their ability to be used as home home hubs. But Apple went in and made a clarification statement to The Verge. And basically, it sounds like with iOS 16, and I haven't seen this yet, so it's a little bit of a little bit of speculation, but sounds like you're going to have the option on whether or not you want to upgrade to the new home architecture. So if you don't do that, you will be able to continue to use your iPad as a home hub, but you're not going to get any of the new features. You're not likely going to get support for Matter. So you, I guess, have to make a choice is what it really comes down to if it's really important for you to maintain an iPad as a home hub. You're going to have to stick with HomeKit and some of the older technology. You're not going to get a lot of the new features, but if you want to update to the new features, um, then you will have to uh, upgrade and the architecture and then potentially lose the ability to use an iPad as a home hub. But hey, there's great you know, Apple TV devices and just a HomePod mini, you know, hundred bucks, you can, uh, you can actually have a hub that would support the new architecture. So I don't think this is a real big deal, but just something to be aware of. We're starting to hear more about Apple Watch and specifically that Apple may be adding a new model to the lineup. This isn't exactly new, new news. We've been hearing about this for a while, but Mark, German still believes that Apple will release a new rugged version of the Apple Watch this year focused on extreme sports. He says, quote, Apple is preparing three new variations, a new low-end SE, a standard Series 8, and a rugged edition aimed at extreme sports. He also thinks that Apple could add body temperature sensing to the Series 8 and the new Extreme model, but this wouldn't give you an exact temperature. It would basically be able to detect when you have an elevated body temperature and sort of alert you, hey, we think you're running a fever. You might want to get that checked out either by a doctor or just you know with a regular thermometer. So could be a new sensing feature, but not as cool as I would hope it would be. It'd be great if it could actually give you a body temperature. And I think there are uh, wrist thermometers. I just don't know if that would require new sensors or something like that. Uh, keeping on this new higher-end extreme Apple Watch, Hightong International Securities Analyst Jeff Poo thinks that the new higher-end versions of the Apple Watches could come in larger sizes and significantly larger. This was also noted by display analyst Ross Young a few weeks back, though he didn't say whether or not the new screen size or the new size would be limited just to the high-end versions of the Apple Watch. Uh, in this new report, they say LuxShare exclusively will be providing a two-inch part uh, to Apple for Apple Watch. And if that's true, that is huge. That's 50 0.55 millimeters. That would be a very big watch. And Ross Young then did tweet a confirmation to the LuxShare news confirming that Apple would be ordering a 1.99 inch display. The new size would be supposedly in addition to the existing 41 millimeter and 45 millimeter sizes. So it could be something maybe maintained just for this new extreme model as sports watches tend to be in rugged, rugged watches tend to be uh, 
significantly larger. And something Mark Gurman says is that it will have a 410 by 502 pixel display resolution, which would allow more exercise information to be displayed. Again, something that extreme sports folks might uh, benefit from. So the other news is that it would be built with a stronger metal than aluminum, uh, maybe titanium, which Apple currently has a titanium watch, but it could be another material. And because of its larger size, it would have a larger battery. And then, of course, with larger sizes and larger screens comes bigger price tags. Pricing on the new Extreme Sports version could be around $900 US or higher as a starting price, meaning this new model could be one that actually replaces Apple's, Apple's current Titanium Edition model, which right now starts at around $800. Bucks, but that, of course, is for the smaller 41mm model. I think it's $899 for the 45mm model. So if you're getting a bigger screen, 50-inch screen, and some more ruggedized features. It seems plausible that this new Apple Watch could be $900 or more. It is going to be definitely on the higher end. The question will be, does Apple maintain the current edition model or is this a replacement? And that remains to be seen. We'll have to find out uh, when Apple actually makes an announcement, uh, probably sometime in the fall. The M2 MacBook Air has gone on sale. It went on sale Friday. Apple started taking orders, and as expected, the units quickly moved into backorder status with some deliveries pushing out almost immediately into mid-July or even early August. I just did a check uh, last night, and if you want a new configuration right now, almost any configuration looks like you're going to be waiting till mid-August. The one terabyte, 16 gigabyte midnight model is the one that seems to be the most popular configuration. Uh, so if you play around with some of the other color choices, you might be able to get a little bit sooner, but probably not too much sooner. Colors like silver or starlight, you can try those. But really, it's looking like if you want a new MacBook Air, you're going to be waiting till about mid to late August at this point. Uh, now, there may be a workaround for that because they're also set to be in Apple stores on the 15th. So it's possible you might be able to roll into an Apple store and snag an M2 MacBook Air, the one of your dreams in the perfect configuration. But I wouldn't uh, hold my breath on that one. But hey, there's always a chance. So if you're really hot to trot and get to get a new M2 MacBook Air and they're pretty amazing, uh, you should uh, maybe give that a try or just order one and wait. You know, not a big deal to wait a little bit longer. It's going to be a really nice machine performance rise early benchmarks are in and they're showing pretty much the same thing we saw with the benchmarks on the m2 13 inch macbook pro which is not surprising because it's exactly the same processor uh, so with a 16 with 16 gigabytes of ram and the 8 core cpu 10 core gpu configuration we're seeing about a 12 percent raw performance gain and again these are raw benchmarks these aren't real world world benchmarks so remember that that's in single core performance and you get almost a 20 percent bump in the multi-core performance so a nice little jump up but you know it's not going to probably change your life in terms of performance but these are great looking machines the new design uh, with the macbook air is incredible and i really like the new dark color it's like we have the black macbook back the 13 inch m2 macbook pro uh, is also been out there for a little while. And this week we heard about some possible flaws and maybe some stumbles in the architecture. YouTube, the YouTube channel Max Tech has been doing some extensive stress testing and benchmarking on the new machines. And they found 
The new architecture seems to have some performance bottlenecks specifically with the entry-level models, but also maybe due to uh, some of the cooling and maybe the new M2 chip. I don't think any of these things are causes for huge concern, but something you should probably be aware of if you're making a buying decision, and I wanted to cover them a little bit. So in my opinion, the majority of these issues are not going to affect most people who are ordering ordering a lower-end MacBook Pro. And honestly, you probably should get a MacBook Air versus the low-end MacBook Pro for most consumers. There's there's very little cases where you're going to need the active cooling, I think, of a MacBook Pro. And I think the, as we've talked about, the Air is just a little bit better value if you're looking to get a consumer M2 model. But again, these are worth noting, especially because maybe when the M2 MacBook Airs come out, they might suffer from some of these as well. Now, the first discovery was that the SSDs in the 256 gigabyte model of the 13-inch MacBook Pro, M2 MacBook Pro, are performing slower and considerably slower than the ones that were in the 13-inch M1 MacBook Pro. This is impacting the read-write performance and also the performance of the unified memory. And the reason seems to be because of Apple's use of a single 256 gigabyte SD module in the M2 MacBook Pro versus the two 128 gigabyte modules used in the original M1 13-inch MacBook Pro. Now, it's not clear why Apple made this design decision choice, but the theory, and I kind of believe this one, is that basically you really can't get 128 gigabyte modules anymore. 256 is about the smallest size, so it's really probably a supply chain choice. But the problem becomes that when you only have a single module, you have a bottleneck because with two modules in there, you can write to both at the same time. So the 512 gigabyte 13 inch MacBook Pro M2 doesn't seem to have the same issues because it uses two 256 gigabyte SSD modules. And why this is important is because it's possible that the, we could see a similar performance degradation in the base model MacBook Air because it may also use a single 256, 256 gigabyte SSD. We won't really know probably till later in the week when we start to see some of the benchmarks and some of these models actually being shipped to consumers and tested, but just something to be aware of. Uh, to be aware of. Now, again, I think for most consumers buying this unit, it's not really going to be a big day-to-day issue in terms of real-world real world performance and you know how you're using the machine, but it definitely is something to be aware of. Your, your copy times and your read-write times are going to be a little bit slower if you opt for the base model versus going with an M1. Now, the other thing that Max Tech's Max Tech discovered was that if you really pushed the 13-inch M2 MacBook Pro to the limit, and they did this by exporting an 8K camera raw video file, the machine can max out for a sustained amount of time kicking on the fan. And because it only has a single fan, it was having a hard time keeping up and went into pretty severe thermal throttle, thermal throttling. As a matter of fact, the CPU reached a temperature of 108 degrees Celsius. Now, once again, this is likely not the kind of workflow that most people would try to push an entry-level MacBook Pro through. Um, and, Again, the reason it's somewhat 
significant is considering the fact that the MacBook Air does not have any active cooling, no fan. It's going to be interesting to see if it has any performance issues or thermal throttling issues, maybe even at lower temperatures, again, because of the lack of a fan. Again, But, you know, overall, I want to be very clear. I don't think this is a huge, huge issue for most consumers. Most folks buying a MacBook Air are not looking for that kind of performance. You're not going to be pushing 8K camera raw you know, exports through the system. So, you know, we have to take this kind of thing with a grain of salt. Again, just talking to you about it so that you're aware of it if you're making a buying decision. And really, if you're looking for that kind of performance, you really probably should be waiting for the 14 or 16-inch MacBook Pros to come out. Also, just something to note on the M2 13-inch MacBook Pro, iFix it did its teardown, and I don't think this is a big surprise, but overall, it's exactly the same architecture and design inside as the M1, just with that new processor in there. And that was really what we were expecting, but you know that might be leading to some of the issues we're seeing. So some people questioning if the M2 is a little bit running a little bit hotter and it's going to be a problem, but once again, I don't think it is going to be. At this point, it seems to me if you do opt for an entry-level configuration, the 256 gigabytes of storage, the 8 gigs of RAM, at least on a 13-inch MacBook Pro or maybe even a MacBook Air, you might be better off if you're really concerned about the performance and the cooling and all that sort of stuff, saving a little bit money, paying a little bit less, and just going with an M1 system currently. Um they might be a little bit better for you when you're making that buying decision. It really just depends on what you're looking for. Now, if the design really matters to you a lot, then maybe you opt for that. And maybe you're not worried about some of these performance things. But, you know, the M1 systems perform very, very well. As you saw with the uh, benchmarks, you're looking at, you know, a slight increase in performance, but not a massive increase in performance. And again, I don't think day-to-day -day most folks with their use cases are going to notice it on either end. So really, you know, the choice comes down to you and what you want. But if you'd like to save a little bit of money, you probably could get an M1 system now and still be very, very happy with that. And like I said, if you really want to bump up the performance, I would wait for the 14-inch, 16-inch MacBook Pro updates because we are expecting new M2 Pro and M2 Max processors. And we're hearing right now that they're going to be built on TSMC's new 3 nanometer process. So this is according to DigiTimes. This should offer better performance and energy efficiency. And that also means they will likely run a little bit cooler be less susceptible to the thermal throttling. Plus, uh, those designs actually have dual fans and a little bit better cooling. So that might be the thing to wait for. They say TSMC will begin volume production of three nanometer chips in the second half of 2022. It's also expected that future M3 processors would use that same design architecture. So maybe some of the issues with the M2 might be resolved by that when the M3s come out. And Mark German does think that Apple is planning M3 upgrades for the 24-inch iMac, likely in the next year or so. And he still believes that Apple is planning a larger pro version of the iMac, probably a 27-inch model, and that that could use M3 Pro or M3 Max processors. But don't expect those this year. It's probably not going to be until late next year when we see those models coming out, if if we do at all. So we'll have to wait and see what Apple does. But New processors in the work and that new architecture should help out a little bit. 
I almost don't even want to talk about this little bit of next news because I think it's going to be a little bit disappointing for people who are looking to upgrade to the new entry-level iPhone 14 this year. The release is looking more and more like it's going to be a little bit of lackluster in terms of the updates and technology that are in the entry-level model. And it's looking more and more like you're going to have to pay a little bit more and maybe update to the Pro model if you want the latest and greatest features. I think supply chain technology and the economy may be getting the better of Apple and iPhone this year as the rumors in advance of the fall iPhone announcement are making Apple, I think, make some kind of radical choices. And again, this is just my opinion, but, you know, in the news, we have Ming-Chi Kuo saying that Apple's 5G modem efforts are struggling and they really haven't been able to bear any fruit yet. And, you know, my opinion, maybe starting with buying Intel's struggling 5G modem group wasn't uh, the best way to go. I don't really know. Apple has some amazing modem engineers, I have no doubt. And I sure the ones from intel were amazing as well but the technology is tricky and it's you know new to apple definitely uh maybe not new to intel's modem group but quo says hey they're struggling he claims that apple's internal modem development has quote unquote failed and that qualcomm will continue to provide the iphone's 5g modems at least into the second half of 2023 and that's not necessarily a bad thing but as we know when apple's able to bring technology in-house and kind of do their own thing and control their own destiny we see some amazing amazing updates so it looks like we're gonna have to wait a little bit longer on that while disappointing it's not really the end of the world apple had originally hoped to use only 20% of Qualcomm modems by 2023, but it looks like 100% are probably going to be in 2023, but maybe they can get there by uh, 2024, 2025, and you know who knows, maybe we'll be on to 6G at that point, and hopefully Apple can catch up. The DigiTimes is also reporting that Apple has had to cut internal iPhone 14 shipments back by about 10%. They're still anticipating huge demand, so that likely means there's going to be supply constraints and Apple's likely going to sell out of the iPhone 14s pretty quickly. But it seems like they had to lower the amounts in the order due to ongoing component shortages. Basically, they just don't have the pieces and parts to build the number that they're looking for. They will ramp up as that changes, I'm sure, but uh, just be be prepared for that at launch as well. Plus, because of the shortages, we're also seeing price hikes on components, and that in addition, seems to be taking a toll. Wedbush analyst Dan Ives believes that we could see a $100 base price increase across the entire iPhone 14 product line. So that means be prepared to pay a little bit more. If you want an iPhone 14, the base model could start at around $899 US with the Pro models starting at almost $1,100. So time for a price increase and not sure if the final bit of news is due to the component shortages or supply chain supply chain issues but we also mentioned ming chi kuo's statements that apple this year may reserve the a16 processor for the higher end pro iphone models only well this week mark german says his checks are indicating exactly the same thing that the iphone 14 and iphone 14 max models will use the same a15 processor as the current uh, iphone 13 
models and that the Pro and Pro Max will get the new updated A16 processor. Plus, Quo thinks that this will be Apple's strategy moving forward to differentiate the base model iPhones from the Pro level. The Pro ones will continue to get the processor upgrades and the lower end models will have the previous year's processor in them. In my opinion, this may also be a revenue generating move for Apple, convincing more customers to step up to the higher cost pro models, at least if they want to get the latest and greatest at launch. It's also believed that new screen features like the no notch hole plus pill punch through design of the cameras, uh, front facing cameras and the new low power always on one hertz refresh rate display will be limited to the pro models as well. We will expect some camera upgrades across the entire line, though, again, as Apple always does, expect the the larger updates to happen on the pro models. So Apple really looking to, I think, drive sales of their pro models, but also, I think, more trying to manage and deal with the current environment in terms of technology and supply chain and chip availability on all that sort of stuff. And by limiting the newest, latest, and greatest stuff to a smaller portion of the devices, that helps them manage that a little bit. So I think all of these things are coming together, but it does mean ultimately, in my opinion, that you know the iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Pro models are not going to have a lot of big features in them that are going to you know, cause a lot of people who buy on the entry level of the iPhone the reason to update. I, I just don't see it. And Another thing that Mac Rumors noticed this week was that Apple has been lowering trade-in values on older devices, though I think this is something they typically do anyway based on market values and conditions. They're just getting older. But just another thing to note, you know, Apple looking to push revenue as much as possible, and they could be making some decisions and choices uh, for that. Now, I know a lot of people don't like that, but, you know, it's the economics of things and what Apple is sort of dealing with. So just setting expectations for this year's iPhone 14 launch. Really, if you're looking for the big updates and big upgrades, be prepared to go pro and be prepared to possibly pay a little bit more. Apple TV Plus continues to prove that while it is a smaller streaming service in terms of numbers, it is pretty mighty when it comes to the quality of their content. Apple TV Plus may not have the most content of all streaming services, but many data points continue to illustrate that their focus on quality content has really paid off. For a second year in a row, a survey of the average IMDb scores and U.S. streaming customer data done by Self Financial has shown that Apple's shows have the highest average IMDb scores of any streaming service. On average, Apple's score is 7.08, beating out other services. And for family content, they scored even higher with an average IMDb score of 7.34. That beats out even Disney+. Plus. Still on quantity, Apple is obviously far behind its competitors, but I have to wonder, does that even really matter? You can only watch so many shows, and if you have to pick a service, wouldn't you want to pick the service with the best quality shows, the highest number of great quality shows, versus something that just has a gazillion shows with only a handful to watch? Pretty much the same thing, and I think with Apple TV's price point, TV Plus's price point of $4.99 a month, you're getting a much better value to quality show ratio, and I think consumers are starting to really recognize that. And, uh, you know, to 
continue to illustrate that Apple TV Plus shows are also the most nominated of any streaming service, and that specifically goes for this year's Hollywood Critics Critics Association Awards. Apple TV Plus shows received an amazing 53 nominations, with popular shows like Severance and Ted Lasso topping the list with 12 nominations each. And again, it seems to be paying off slowly but surely. Apple continues to gain share little by little, Latest numbers from Just Watch show that Apple TV Plus gained 1% more of the U.S. streaming market over the past three months. This while Netflix lost 2% and smaller players like Disney and HBO also gained 8%. Now, interestingly, in this list, Amazon Prime is the second most subscribed streaming service with a 20% share. But in my mind, I feel like they almost shouldn't count. I don't know about you, but, you know, I have Amazon Prime video and it's only because I subscribe to Amazon Prime to get free shipping and other features on Amazon. And the video stuff is really just a bonus, but I really don't watch much on Amazon Prime, although I think the new season of Uploaded is there now, and I kind of enjoyed season one, so I might go back to watch that. But it's probably the last streaming service that I actually go to when I'm looking for content. So it's interesting. They have a high share, but I don't think they really should rate in the same way because it feels like a little bit of different reason why most people are there. I guess you could also argue with the Apple's new... Um, one subscriptions that Apple TV could be gaining share because of that reason as well. So I have to be careful what I say, but that could be something that's going on. And as far as new quality content coming to Apple TV+, Plus, Apple continues to sign exclusive first look deals. I think this is another great way where Apple is getting, you know, kind of first chance at a lot of great new content. And this past week, they did a deal with Animal Pictures, which is owned by Maya Rudolph and Natasha Leone. Uh, Hollywood Reporter says that this is a multi-year deal and Apple will get the opening shot at series and digital feature projects from the company. Maya Rudolph's new Apple TV Plus series, Loot, also debuted on Apple TV Plus this past week, and I think it did pretty well, made it into the top 10 of most streaming uh, most streamed shows over the past week in Just Watch. So again, I continue to be very impressed with Apple TV Plus. I've enjoyed almost everything I have watched on the service and I continue to look forward to new content. I think the new Blackbird TV series is getting rave reviews right now. And that one is really interesting to me. So I'm looking forward to watching that. The White House announced the 17 recipients of this year's Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Steve Jobs made the list posthumously. The Presidential Medal of Freedom is the highest civilian honor in the United States, and it's given to folks who have made exemplary contributions to the, to the prosperity, values, or, or security of the United States, world peace, or other significant societal, public, or private endeavors. Steve Jobs was picked because, quote, his vision, imagination, and creativity led to inventions that have and continue to change the way the world communicates, as well as transforming the computer, music, film, and wireless industries. And I think this is really well-deserved. It's a little bit sad that it's ha- happening 
uh, posthumously, but, uh, you know, I guess better late than never. Steve Jobs obviously changed the world in incredible and amazing ways. And Apple actually continues to do that under the leadership of Tim Cook. So I think we're all fans. And no doubt, if you're listening to the show, you're probably a fan. And uh, I thought this was a great bit of news. It's not really clear uh, who will be there to pick up the award for the award for Steve, but I would imagine Lorraine Powell Jobs, his uh, his widow, will be the one to uh, be at the event. I want to let you know that if your new iPad Mini is giving you charging issues, it might not be just you. Mac Rumors attained a recent note sent to Apple service providers about a possible issue impacting the iPad Mini 6th generation after updating to iPadOS 15.5. The issue seems to impact some iPad Mini owners and prevents them from being able to charge after updating to iPadOS 15.5. So if that's you and you're having charging issues... Yeah, I guess I have a little bit of good news. Apple seems to confirm that it's not a hardware issue. They are aware of the issue and note that replacing the battery will not resolve the problem. So uh, you don't need to do that. But they're also telling service providers that uh, as a temporary fix, they would recommend restarting the device. But unfortunately, you can restart the device. The issue might come back. So it is going to need some sort of software update. Um, the other thing that I wonder about is if you don't notice that you have it, you're having the charging issue that your device is not charging and then it goes dead, you're going to have a hard time resetting it. So you might be completely stuck until Apple can issue a software update. Apple does currently have the beta of iPad, iPad OS 15.6 in testing right now. It's not clear if this will resolve the problem or not, but hopefully they can rush that in there. If not, maybe Apple will have a patch soon after that. But if you are suffering from this, just be, be aware that Apple is aware of the issue and they're working on a fix. And then finally, in the news for today, Apple continues to roll out their improved map experience. They added three more countries this week. Customers in France, New Zealand, and Monaco can now enjoy new, more accurate, faster navigation, improved imagery with three-dimensional landmarks and locations, more detailed road views, shopping mall views, parks, airports, and greenways, and a whole lot more. The enhanced map experience, I think, is really, really great. And again, Apple continues to make great strides and improvements in Apple Maps. I know it gets better and better all the time. Nice to know that those of you in France, New Zealand, and Monaco can now experience that as well. And uh, again, they plan to roll it out in many more countries moving forward. So if you haven't made the list yet, I'm sure it is coming. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a couple show sponsors, starting with Ladder. You know, the last few years have had me thinking more and more about the financial security of my family. It's actually part of what prompted me to make my recent move, really financial security, the rising cost of living, having a house payment. And, you know, all of that is a lot of responsibility. And of course, one thing I worry about is making sure that no matter what happens to me, my family is always safe and protected. And so that's why I think it makes sense for people to get life insurance, especially term coverage, because it's surprisingly affordable. Now, why not pay a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. 
Ladder is 100% digital, so no doctors, no needles, no paperwork when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply, and then Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you find out instantly if you're approved. If you'd prefer to talk to a person, their team of licensed agents doesn't work on commissions, so they'll help you and not upsell you. There's no hidden fees. You can cancel any time and get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. And ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by AM Best. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot, and they made Forbes' Best Life Insurance 2021 list. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash matcast today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash matcast, ladderlife.com slash matcast, and a big thank you to Ladder for their support of the show. I'd also like to thank my sponsor, Hunter Douglas. You know, who doesn't love to live well? To be perfectly at ease in comfort and in style, Hunter Douglas can help you do just that with their innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems so advanced they can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day. Perhaps it's the way shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast a beautiful glow across the room, or maybe being able to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. Or maybe it's the superior insulation that shades provide, keeping you warmer in winter, cooler in summer, and lowering your utility bills. Or is it simply that Goldilocks moment when you walk into a room and everything about it looks and feels just right? And when you tap into Hunter Douglas's Power View technology, your shades can be set to automatically reposition for the perfect balance of light, privacy and insulation morning noon and night if you haven't checked out hunter douglas's line yet you definitely should i have a new house and we're of course looking for new window coverings and the power view technology i think is amazing and it comes in just a whole host range of styles and designs and you can definitely find one that's right for your home and because it's home kit compatible it's going to integrate amazingly with your ios devices your macs and your home pods and allow you to control fully your hunter douglas window shades and to me that's incredibly cool so live beautifully with hunter douglas enjoying greater convenience enhanced style and increased comfort in your home throughout the day visit hunterdouglas.com slash matcast today to get your free style get smarter design guide with fresh takes creative ideas and smart solutions for dressing your windows visit hunterdouglas.com slash matcast for your free design guide and a big thank you to hunter douglas for their support of the show Last time we had a listener bring up an interesting question regarding Apple's family plans. And this came up specifically because of the new family iCloud photo library that Apple announced at Worldwide Developer Conference that's coming with the next version of macOS and iOS, iPadOS. And the question was, you know, is six people enough to be in a family? Because he was thinking about the extended family that we all have. If you want to share photos, you might want to share photos with more than 12 people in your family. Maybe not just your immediate family, but also people in your extended family. So grandparents, aunts and uncles, 
other friends and family, you know, really, where is that definition getting set? And so I kind of threw that question out to the community. Right now, it's six people. And I think the intent is that Apple always felt like family plans were for families that were kind of they always defined it as under the same roof. And obviously that's changed over the years, but I think originally that was the intent. You know, like a family plan is for all the people that actually share a house. Um, but, you know, a number of people felt a little bit differently. Some people thought it was okay. Tony said, the limit of six, that seems okay because the average size of a family, at least in the U.S. as of 2021, was just over three people. It was like 3.13 people, although I'm not sure what, 1.13 of a person looks like. Uh, but he was more concerned about Apple's policies in terms of who pays for stuff, which I think is another problem, probably a separate problem. We could maybe have a whole discussion about that. But, you know, right now, a family plan, if you are the main person on that plan, the person who set it up, and then you invite other family members, the main account holders uh, card is the one that's used for all purchases, regardless of whoever in the family makes those. And like we were talking about, this comes up as a problem when you have older kids or just, again, extended members who are maybe not even living in your house anymore, and they have their own credit cards, they have their own way to pay, but the bill still goes to the main family plan account under account holder. So he said, you know, it'd be really great if Apple would allow the card that's on file for whoever purchases or makes the purchase to be the one who's charged, not just the main account owner. And I kind of agree with this. This has always been a little bit of a challenge or a problem. We've talked about the different workarounds you can do for this. Many people use gift cards to get around this because if you do have a gift card amount on your account, the charges come out of that. And that presents its own kinds of challenges. Like, for example, when my kids accounts had extra storage they would get gift cards put them in there expecting to be able to have that money for making purchases but then it would actually pull that money out of their storage plans now that we have family shared storage plans not as much of an issue but you used to have individual you know iCloud storage accounts for each person so that's sort of been solved but again I think Tony has a valid point that Really, if there's a credit card file on a family member's account, that should be the card that is used. Or you should at least have the option to say, hey, use my card, not the main holder's card. That would be a nice thing. Getting back to the number of people in a family, Daniel felt like having a default of six people for the fixed charge services was actually probably pretty good. And I think, again, for a lot of the same reasons, there's not too many immediate families where you have more than six people within that family. But he thought, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for Apple to offer the ability to add additional family members at a, an additional fee. So for the different services, and you'd have to kind of figure it out, and maybe Apple doesn't want to do this because it would be a little bit complicated, but basically you want to add one more family member above six, it's going to cost you a certain amount per month, and that's the charge, and you can add as many people as you want. So maybe there's a revenue opportunity there to kind of solve this problem. And I thought that was a pretty good idea. Now, Paul wrote in to say that he wondered about situations specifically with the shared family albums where you might want to be in a family album of two different families. So the example would be maybe a daughter wants to share her photos within her own family and extended family, but also wants to be able to share the photos of her husband's family. 
And I think that's another common scenario. Today, Apple does not allow you to be in multiple family share plans. And I would assume by proxy, you wouldn't be able to be in multiple family albums. As a matter of fact, right now, if you, you can switch families, like you can go from one family plan to another family plan. But when you do that, that's fine, but you're not allowed to switch back for 90 days. So if you change your mind and want to go back to your original family, there's a 90-day lockout. And that's been ex in existence for a while. And that was because it was to prevent you from sharing purchased content like your books, TV shows, and movies. Because if they allowed you to just move around, you could flop over to another family plan, a share plan, you know, watch all those movies and TV shows and just flop back. So it was kind of a way of, you know, getting around some of the restrictions in terms of, you know who owned books and movies and TV shows. So to prevent that, they kind of put this 90 day thing in place and it's just been around since then. So I don't know what the solution for that is, you know, having multiple family share albums that you can participate in. That would be a nice feature, not part of what Apple has already announced. And then the other thing that I brought up was my concern with the family shared albums is it sounds like it truly is a shared album. So if you put your photos in there, Anyone can edit those photos. Anybody can do changes to those photos. And, and almost more scarily, anybody can actually, in the family share can actually delete those items. Now, Apple has their nice little 30-day window where it goes into the trash and it won't actually get deleted, but you can delete items in that trash and have them deleted immediately. So, you know, I could imagine situations where a family member accidentally deletes a photo or a photo gets removed that's, you know, your photo, the one that you took, even though it's another family member that removed it or edits it in a way where you don't like that version and you want your version. So I'm hoping that there's some controls and some things in place to kind of help manage that and allow you to make some choices about that. But they didn't talk about that at Worldwide Developer Conference. I am looking very much forward to the shared family albums. It's something I've brought up on the show in the past that it would be really nice for Apple to have this at some point. And so the fact that we're even getting it, I think is amazing, but they're obviously are a lot of questions, concerns, and things that people want to know about. So if you have additional questions around uh, the new family shared albums, uh, go ahead and shoot them to me and I will do my best to get answers or we'll just talk about it here in the community. Another thing we talked about on a recent episode of the MacCast was somebody was asking about cable organization and how do you keep all the desktop clutter and cable clutter uh, for your Macs in check and in control. And I talked about a couple different methods on a previous episode, but I also threw it out to the community and said, hey, what are you using? And one of the things that I talked about was I love zip ties, um, but the problem is, is if you need to redo or undo cables, you got to clip the ties and you got to put new ones on and it's kind of a hassle. And so, you know, a lot of people use Velcro and I think Velcro is, is great and works well also, but Bruce wrote in, and this was what I was kind of hoping for and said, hey, I use releasable zip ties and he gave me a link to uh, them on Amazon. I'll have that in the show notes at maccast.com, but I don't know why I never thought to go look for these things. And I never thought they were a thing that you could have zip ties that were releasable and reusable, but it turns out you can get them on Amazon. So if you want to still use zip ties, but you want to be able to easily undo them, redo them. And Bruce says they're great for all kinds of applications, not just not just, you know, tying up your cables. So he uses them for all sorts of things, um, including one handy little tip. And I just got a new lawnmower, right? I got a new house. And so I have a new powered lawnmower, but it has that safety bar where you have to kind of squeeze the bar uh, to keep it going. And if you let go, right, it turn it turns off. But 
that causes a problem because if you just want to take your hands off for a minute, maybe to get a drink from your water bottle or something like that, you kind of got to hold it and do a one-handed thing. He says, hey, I use the zip ties for that, these releasable zip ties for that, and they work great. So I think I'm going to be ordering a set of these. And thank you, Bruce, for sending those along because, again, I had no idea, and I'm guessing there's others in our community that didn't know these were a thing. So I think if you've listened to the show for a while now, one, you know that I am fanatical about backup. And two, that a big part of my backup strategy is my Drobos. This week, there was a bit of news that made me a little bit nervous. I've actually been a little bit nervous about Drobo for a while now, but this week it came out, I think on Reddit, that they filed officially back in late June for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And in case you don't know what Drobo is or what Drobo does, Drobo makes direct attached and network attached storage products for Macs and PCs. And they're extremely popular because of their ease of use and setup. And it's one of the reasons I really love them. And they were also one of the first ones to pioneer technology. It goes under different names depending on manufacturer, but they call it their Beyond RAID technology. And, you know, we'll get into RAIDs here in a little bit, but basically RAIDs and RAID technology for hard drives has always been a little bit like magic science it's a, it's a little bit tricky to understand it's not super difficult but you know a lot of people struggle with it myself included I, i've never been a fan there's all these different versions of raid and they do different things and you have to kind of know what they're doing so what drobo did was they said let's take that out of the equation let's just give you a drive a storage product where you can pop in any sized drives and we'll figure it all out we'll make them uh redundant and we'll make them uh perform well and all you have to do is buy this appliance and they're hot swappable so if you have a drive fail we'll notify you you can just pop it out you can put a new one in it'll automatically reconfigure and rebuild itself and you don't have to do a lot of thinking so the software was kind of the really big part of it and the software built into the hardware and all that sort of stuff and so it's one of the reasons i really loved them now they had their own disadvantages and one of the reasons a lot of people didn't like them is because you know the drobo format that supports the beyond raid technology you're locked into drobo and so if you have a complete failure of the hardware those drives can't be popped out. If you need that data off of it, you have to put it back in another Drobo. And that's where some of the concerns are coming into play now. Because for the past couple of years, if you've tried to order a Drobo because of supply chain and all those sorts of things, they haven't had them available. You literally almost cannot buy a Drobo right now. And it's been that way for a couple of years. And it made me wonder, how can a company not sell products and survive? Well, apparently... They really can't, or at least they're going to have big financial issues because now they're filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now, the the bright side, if there's any bright side of this, is this is, according to them, just a restructuring. They said they're doing it to fix their balance sheet, and it's hopefully going to allow them to stay in business as they restructure. Again, that remains to be seen, and that's where the concern comes into play because... Drobo could go away. And if Drobo goes away, that means the software goes away, software support goes away, the hardware support goes away. And so if you own a Drobo, and I'm in this camp, as as I've just said, I think it may be time to consider moving to some other storage option, maybe from a company. And I hate to say this because I love Drobo. Um, 
but you know, they got bought, bought recently by a company called Nexam. There's just been a lot of turmoil at the company. So I think time may be running out or getting shorter. At least you should have an alternate or a plan B, something that you can move to. And so I've been kind of looking at what are my options out there? And, uh, you know, I'm not big on this stuff. So I turned to my own tech guru, at least when it comes to storage and network attached storage. And that's Dave Hamilton over at Mac Geek Gab. Uh, if you haven't checked out their podcast, you definitely should. I'm sure many of you who listen to this show are also listeners to uh, Dave and John. But uh, go check out that podcast. And they talk about this stuff a lot. And he really had two suggestions for me. And it really came down to, do you need direct attached storage? storage. So that's, you know, a storage device that you're going to hook up directly to your Mac. And that's you. That's exactly what I do with my Drobos, although I have a direct attached Drobo connected to a Mac mini that I kind of use as a NAS. So I may replace that one with a more formal network attached storage. And and uh, he said, so if you're going with direct attached storage, I'd really take a look at the OWC Thunder Bay line of products. And as you know, we are big fans of OWC here at uh, at MacCast, so I will have links to their products in the show notes at MacCast.com, but MacSales.com. And then he said, if you're going with network-attached storage, I would look at Synology. And Synology is great. It's been around for years. I actually own a Synology device. But my na- main need is for direct-attached storage. Um, and so, you know, my biggest issue with losing the Drobo, I think is the ease of use. I still think they have the nicest solution for non- techie folks. A lot of these other solutions, uh, you know, are more technical. The Beyond RAID technology just made it so easy to get everything set up. Now, Synology offers a similar technology with their hybrid RAID, uh, but that's in a NAS product. I really can't find anything in a direct attached storage product that kind of matches what the Drobo was doing. And so the Thunder Bay products from OWC are great, but you really need to set them more up as a traditional RAID. And they give you the software to do that. Um, they have the soft RAID software that, you know, you have to pay for, but it is an option on the products and you need to set up a traditional RAID. And most likely the RAID version you're going to want to set up to kind of mimic a Drobo or Drobo functionality in terms of the best balance between performance and redundancy is going to be either a RAID 5 or a RAID 6. And the difference between RAID 5 and RAID 6 is really single redundancy or dual redundancy. And what that comes down to is if a drive fails, can you have two hard drives fail and still retain your data uh, parity, or can you only have one drive fail? So with RAID 5, if you have one drive fail, your storage is just fine. You will have to power down your RAID, replace the one bad drive with a new drive, and then it will rebuild. The concern there is the rebuild times can take pretty long depending on how much storage you have and how much you have stored. And so if you have a second failure at that time, then you're in trouble. You need to have the full RAID up and running and you can only have one drive failure at once. And that's where RAID 6 comes into play. In that scenario, it's similar, but you can have two drive failures and still uh, still maintain your data. The only other problem with traditional RAID, and it's not really a problem, it's just how it works, is that you really need to fill all your drive bays. So if you get a four bay storage device or a six or an eight, you really need to fill all of those or you want to fill all of those with exactly the same sized drives. And, you know, that's where Drobo had this real advantage is, you know, I could, you know, this year buy four, ter- four, four terabyte drives for 
my device and fill up all four bays. And then if I have a four terabyte failure and now suddenly, you know, six terabyte or eight terabyte drives are more affordable, I could replace with a larger drive and get the extra storage and it would just kind of rebuild itself and it really didn't care. The Thunder Bays will support different size drives, but in that scenario, the size of the smallest size drive in the RAID is what's used to create the RAID. So if you have four terabyte drive, one four terabyte drive, for example, and three eight terabyte drives, the total storage on that RAID is only going to still be 16 terabytes, not the full 28. Now you can par- partition the other eight terabyte drives and get the additional storage back and use it in some other way, but you're not going to be able to use it as part of the RAID. All of the RAID drives need to be the same size is what it comes down to. And so the software can manage that, you know, sit on a OWC software software does a great job of doing that. And, you know, it is just one of those limitations to be aware of. So if you're moving to that kind of product, something you need to think about. Synology, on the other hand, again, it's network attached storage, similar kind of thing. And they do have their own version of that, um, that technology, you know, the, the hybrid RAID technology. And I actually use that in my Synology and it works great. But the Synology management software, you know, it's like going in to configure a Windows system or a Linux system or something like that. They have, you know, a lot of features and it's not overly complex, but it's definitely more technical than it was with the Drobo. And um, one of the really cool things about Synology and their NASs, though, is that they have all kinds of apps and features and things that you can add to it. So you can set up file sharing. Um, if you're a developer, you can set up Docker on that and run Docker instances off of it. You can run VPN on it. You can set up personal cloud storage and they have software for that. So a lot of people ask me, hey, can I, I don't want my stuff on iCloud. I don't want it in any you know third-party cloud thing. I want my own cloud. And with a Synology, you can actually set that up and build it, but you have to know how to configure it. You have to know how to, you know, get through your firewalls and do it securely and set up, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it gives you all the tools and features to do that but you know it's a little more technically fiddly uh and you know not just plunk out of the box appliance which really was was what drobo was but again drobo you know could be going away so just something to think about and i also wanted to throw this out to the community because you know i'm not an expert on this i had to turn to my expert dave and i think he gave me some great advice but I'm curious, what direct attached storage solutions are you using? What network attached storage solutions are you using? And what are some of the things that you like about them or maybe don't like about them? What are some of the challenges? What are some of the great things? So give us some feedback. Shoot me an email. Send me an audio comment. Maccast at gmail.com. I received a great question this week from Rick. And actually, this is interesting because it was something that I thought about recently as well. And it was on the Mac and it's the Mac Control Center. He says, can that be customized? Because, you know, there's some things in there in the Control Center that I don't really use. Like I'm not really interested in focus or I'm not really interested in the music player controls. So can I get those out of there? Can I kind of clean it up and manage it? And the answer is Rick, sort of. (laughs) Now, I would argue on focus, you want that in there because that's actually now where you manually can enable do not disturb. So even if you're not using the other modes, you might want to get in and do, do do not disturb. For me, do not disturb is great when I'm doing screen sharing for work, 
because I'm remote now, I do a lot of Zoom calls. So just turn that on and then you don't get embarrassing notifications coming in while you're sharing your screen. It's also great for making presentations if you're doing PowerPoint or something like that. And also just great if you need some peace, if you just need a distraction-free bit of time to go through things. So, you know, I find that one handy, but I can understand that maybe it's not for you. Um, but in terms of customizing it, yes, you can go into system preferences. You can go into the dock and menu bar preferences, and then you'll see a couple of sections. You'll see one called control center, and you'll see one called other modules. Now the control center items can be configured and customized, but they cannot be removed from the control center. And unfortunately for you, Rick, both focus and now playing, which is the music player section, they are in that control center section. So you can't customize them. You can't remove them. They're, they're stuck in your control center. The other modules, anything under there can be added or removed from control center by selecting them in the sidebar and then checking or unchecking the show in control center option. And for me, the ones that are in there are accessibility options, battery, and fast user switching. I don't know if any third-party modules or anything would show up in there, but possibly. And then um, there's also another section called menu bar only items. And these are just things that will only show up in the menu bar. You can't put them into control center or anything like that because some you can actually have both places. So there are options in some control center modules to have them in the menu bar and also in the control center if you'd like. So you can play around with the settings, but probably not a lot you can do to really customize or change around your control center, not in the way we can on iOS at least. So I hope that answers your question and maybe there's some third-party tools or some tricks or workarounds. I didn't find any, but maybe somebody in the uh, MacCast community has some hints and, or, or tricks for us there. And then finally in uh, the episode for this week, I have a question or kind of, I guess, more of a concern from Brett. And here's what Brett had to say. Hi, Adam. Brett from Coachella Valley. Always good to hear your show. And I thank you very much for everything you do for us. Hey, I'm sending you this message today about the AirPods Pro extended warranty program. Apple has replaced my AirPods Pro five times now for the same issue each time, which is the crackling and audio distortion. They kind of hesitate replacing them each time, and then I have to remind them that they have an extended warranty in place, and then they finally fess up to replacing them for free. So I'm disappointed that Apple plays seems to play a little game each time, But more importantly, I don't know if this latest pair will last, you know, or if it's going to be the same issue again in six to eight months, the distortion will appear. I've asked Apple several times why it happens. I even told them that I use them at the gym and I was wondering if sweat is an issue. Uh, They've never given me an answer as to why the problem keeps happening. They just keep replacing them. So I'm really curious to know. In fact, 9to5Mac put out an article today saying that this is now a recall. Uh, So I'm really curious to know uh, from you or listeners on your show, how many folks are impacted by this? And, um, And does anyone have any idea why this continues to happen uh, and lastly, has Apple implemented a fix for anybody that that really works, or does or is everyone in the same boat I am, and they just keep replacing them 
uh, for free through Apple. Anyway, thank you very much. That's uh, the question I have for you today, and any response you have will help me out a lot. Have a good day. Hey, Brett, we'll try and help you out here as best we can. I went looking for the new article from 9to5Mac. They had covered this originally, I think, back in 2021 when the Apple first initiated this uh, warranty program. And it looks like it's not really a recall or a new recall. It's still the same warranty program. It just seems like they've extended the coverage for another year. So originally it was going to cover AirPods Pro for two years from the first sale. Now it's covering it for three years. So it sounds like you might be covered for another year, uh, but that probably doesn't address your concerns or issues about Apple having to continually replace your AirPods. But it sounds like they'll continue to replace them for another year if you continue to have the issues. So I guess that's like the good news side of this. The bad news side of it is I I have no idea why this keeps happening to you. You know, I have a set of AirPods Pro, uh, the current generation, and I have experienced crackling or static, but it's always been intermittent or temporary. It's never been permanent and never been a huge, huge issue. So I don't think mine have ever fallen under the warranty replacement program at all. I've never had to do it. Now, I did have an issue where my microphone has now died. Um, and I'm actually waiting to buy some new AirPods. I think I talked about this on the show. And as a temporary workaround, I ended up getting a set of the Beats Studio Buds. And I, I did a kind of uh, cool, cool thing of the moment or thing of the moment segment on it, because I think they're really, really great. They're basically exactly the same as AirPods Pro. They don't have the stem, obviously different design and their beats. So they're a little bit heavier on the base, but overall they have the charging case. They have a great battery life. They uh, do the easy pairing with your device. They have surround sound um, or spatial audio and also noise cancellation. The only thing that they don't have is the H1 chip. So you can't do the device switching. You actually have to kind of manually pick them when you go from device to device, but that's not that huge of an issue. And I got them at Walmart here in the US on special, the, the white version for about 120 bucks. So much cheaper than a set of AirPods Pro. Um, but I'm also waiting for the new AirPods Pro to come out because as we've talked about on the show, those are rumored to be coming any day. But kind of getting back to your question, yeah, this article over at 9to5Mac um, does offer some temporary fixes or, or workarounds. You know, they tell you check the battery, check your Bluetooth setting, make sure your mic and speaker grills are clean. That was one thing that I thought might have been the issue with my mics, actually, is that, you know, the noise cancellation gets messed up because you get gunk in the sensors and stuff like that. So just making sure that they're cleaned out and they're doing okay. And then, of course, Apple will always want you to reset them. And so I don't, I don't know if that comes down to what you're experiencing when you call support before you have to remind them about the warranty replacement program is, you know, Apple is going to train their people to always try to help you troubleshoot your device first. And I know it can be frustrating when you know it's an ongoing issue and you're like, I know what the problem is. The best thing you can do there is just make sure that you've tried or done all the things that they're recommending. So, you know, did you reset your AirPods before you call them? Reset your AirPods and, you know, it probably won't fix it. And when it doesn't fix it, then you can at least tell them, no, I already tried that. I already tried that. I'd already tried that. And they'll get through the questions and then they'll probably just send you the replacements at that point because they are aware of the warranty repair program. But obviously, they don't want to just repair 
a set of earbuds that's just having a software issue or just needs to be reset or something like that. So be patient with them. They're just doing their job. They're going through their thing, but I know how that could be frustrating. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there is other potential fixes or if Apple has other potential fixes that they haven't told us about, you know, if a member of the community knows, I'm sure they will let us know. Um, but I thought this was a good reminder and thank you for sending this in that this replacement program is in place. So, you know, if you do have a set of uh, AirPods Pro and they're crackling or you're getting uh, static sounds that increase in loud environments or with exercise or when you're talking on the phone or if your active noise cancellation isn't working, you have a loss of bass sound, um, there's increasing background noise w- when you're in noise cancellation mode, you might be impacted by this problem and you might be able to get your AirPods replaced for free. Now, hopefully you don't have to have them replaced as many times as you've had to have them, Brett. I'm sorry that keeps happening to you. I don't know why um, you're you're not getting a better set. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a, an endemic program or a systemic issue. Um may just be bad luck. I I don't know. Because again, I did not have that kind of issue with my AirPods Pro. And actually, my daughter's now using them because she doesn't care about the microphones. She just wants them for listening to music and watching TV shows and movies and stuff like that. So they still work great for that. And I will be getting a new set the minute that Apple announces them. But I'm just like a lot of us waiting on that. So thanks for sending in uh, the comment. Hopefully someone in our community will have some additional answers. And of course, we will share those on a future episode of Mac cast when and if they come in. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode. Thanks for hanging out with me. Uh, as always, uh, bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to share with us, uh, something you'd like to hear me cover on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM9, and you can leave a voicemail there. If you need show notes, links to anything you're talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.